Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Galatians, chapter 4. mention it's good to have Woody back, who was in New York City and back east for a while. We're glad she's back with us. Having presented the background story, or should I say stories, in chapters 1 through 3, in chapter 4, Paul begins to make his argument to the Galatians as to why they are so wrong to desert the one who called you by the grace of Christ. The final story that Paul relates in chapter 3 is that of faith. What we saw was that he refers to the matter of the coming of faith. If you look in chapter 3, verse 23, before this faith came, in verse 25, now that faith has come. And I think there must be of necessity a connection to what one might call the Jesus event or the messianic event. That is, the coming of Jesus into the world. Otherwise, faith is just whatever you want to make it. It's just sort of a belief. But for Paul, faith and the coming of Jesus are in fact connected and should not be separated. There are those, as I mentioned last Sunday, who mistakenly hear Paul saying that the law was hard and so God chose an easier way, that is the way of faith. I mentioned this last week, uh, a quote, while the old method, that is the law, was hard and difficult, the new, that is faith, is easy and within the reach of all. This is not what Paul is saying at all. Faith must be seen, as Paul is demonstrating, to be in connection with the Jesus event. Let me read to you again verses 23 and 25. Before this faith came, we were being held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The coming of faith must be tied to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the end of the story of the law. The law had a purpose. It was a pedagogue. It was a disciplinarian that would serve us until we reach maturity. Well, as human beings, we cannot because of sin. But one son did, and that is Jesus. He reached maturity, and so the story ends. Jesus, the Messiah, ends the story of the law. How do we identify now with him, Jesus, the Messiah? Um, Well, as we saw last week, specifically it's in the matter of baptism, in verse number 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Why baptism? Again, I mentioned last week, first of all, Paul would later tell his readers in his letter to the Romans that baptism is identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. As one is put into the water of baptism and then emerges, we have symbolically the reenacting of the death, the burial, the putting into the water, and the resurrection of Jesus, the crucified Messiah. The life of Jesus is demonstrated in the one being baptized. We are joining him in his story. At the same time, it also represents a symbolic form of exodus. Um, we are delivered from slavery. We are redeemed at the hand of or by the hand of God, and we come into covenant with God. 
In the same way that we have Israel coming out of Egypt and going through the Red Sea, and Paul calls this the baptism of Moses, in the same way we are brought out of sin into the family of God, and this is demonstrated or symbolized by baptism. The new exodus is not limited to a particular ethnic group like the Jews, or certain social status, or to certain gender. No, Paul tells the Galatians, if you look at verse number 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And here we come back to the confrontation with Peter in chapter 2, in which Peter was being a hypocrite. He was being hypocritical for eating with Gentile Christians until the men from Jerusalem came, and suddenly he separates himself. Paul says, no, this is not the way it is. There is to be unity in Christ. We are one in Christ. It's not, I'm a Jewish Christian, or I'm a Gentile Christian. If you are in Christ, you are a Christian. You are one of God's children. Then we come to chapter 4. And based on the stories found in chapters 2 and 3, we find two conclusions. First of all, the law belonged to the preparatory age. And secondly, the Galatians and those who follow, that would be us, belong to the time when the inheritance has been realized. Look, if you would, let's just read uh, verses 1 through 7. This is what we studied last week. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. I'm reviewing here, but one would think that after all that Paul had written in chapters 1, 2, and 3, talking about faith and justification, that he would do so in chapter 4. He does not. Chapter 5, he mentions a couple times the matter of justification. Chapter 6, no mention at all. After telling the story of Abraham, the story of the curse, the promise, the law, the faith, Paul now tells a story of a new exodus. And he uses the language of slavery and redemption and inheritance, full rights as sons. But not a word about faith or justification. What does Paul point to instead? What is the key, as I mentioned last week, to any theological discussion, any discussion of the truth? It's seen in verse number six. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. To tell the story of Christian redemption, to make the application, Paul doesn't talk about faith. He doesn't talk about justification. He points to God. God is not merely the source of truth. It is the nature of God, which in fact is truth. Specifically, God is Trinity. If you look at verse number 6, we find the Father mentioned, the Son, and the Spirit. It is the Father who sent the Son. It is the Father who sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Being declared right or righteous in the sight of God is important. Having faith, trusting in Jesus as the crucified Messiah is important. But more important than that is the reality of the Trinity. 
the God who is the true God. If you will allow me, I want to just examine and pursue the matter of Trinity a bit. And mention three things. First of all, in Paul's writings, you will find that he speaks of the Trinity, but in a way perhaps that is unfamiliar to us. When he speaks, when he writes God, he is speaking of the Father. When he speaks of the Lord, and it's usually not simply the Lord, but the Lord Jesus Christ, he is speaking of the Son. And then obviously when he speaks of the Spirit, he is speaking of God, the Holy Spirit. We see this in our passage in verse number 6. But if you also look at verse number 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law. We hear it in the benediction that we often use from Second Corinthians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So as Paul writes of Trinity, we need to understand and we need to see it because he doesn't say Trinity. This brings up the second matter. The matter of Trinity, in theology, Trinity is what is known as a class two word. That is to say, it is a word not found in the Bible. And by the way, the word Bible isn't found in the Bible either. Rather, it is a word that is created by the church and used by the church to describe something. So this is the word of God. This is scripture. We call it the Bible, the book. In the same way, Trinity is a word that was coined, we think, by Tertullian at the end of the second century to describe God. That is, God is three in one. When we speak of Trinity, we need to understand that it is a revealed truth. It embodies a truth that has never been discovered and, in fact, cannot be discovered by natural human reason. A person cannot sit down on their own, apart from God, and say, oh, yes, God is Trinity. This is something that can only come as God reveals it. I find it interesting that in pagan religions we find trinities of sorts. And um, I've told you before, whenever we find a counterfeit, it is because there is something that is genuine. And because we have the genuine trinity, we would expect to find counterfeit. So among the Egyptians, you have Osiris, Isis, and Horus, uh, who are a family, actually, father, mother, and son. In Hinduism, which one would think is as far away from Christianity, an Eastern religion as one could get, we find not one but two sets of trinities. During the Vedic period, you have the three gods of Agni, Indra, and Varuna. But then as time moves on, uh, in the, we wouldn't call it the modern period, but in the common era, you have Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. But these are not trinities, not trinities as found in scripture. There are no analogies in nature that can demonstrate or illustrate the Trinity. Um, some say, well, yeah, human beings are uh, body, soul, and spirit. That, I don't think, is correct. Um, in Trinity, God stands apart as unique. Only God is Trinity. By this, we mean that the essence of God, within the essence of God, are three persons, not three separate gods, they're not three modes of expression. They are three persons with one essence. They are co-equally and co-eternally God. You might say, and rightly so, I'm sorry, Damon, but I, I just can't get my mind around that. Well, I will repeat what I said a moment ago, that the truth of the Trinity is purely revealed. It embodies a truth which cannot be discovered 
by human reason alone. And in, in a real sense, I would argue that it cannot be fully, even partially apprehended or comprehended by natural human reason. Some have tried, because you know, as human beings, we, we, we don't like mysteries. We, we want to know what's going on. I've told my students many, many times, my mom loves to read Agatha Christie, but she has a maddening habit, and that is that she reads the last chapter first because she wants to know how it turns out. She doesn't want to be, you know, any type of tension. She wants it, you know, to be all figured out. And so people have done that with the Trinity. We have those, what we call modalists. That is, they believe that there's only one person, but that he has revealed himself in different modes. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself as Father, as the lawgiver, as the creator. In the New Testament, God reveals himself as the Savior and Redeemer in the Son. And then, after the New Testament, or after the ascension of Jesus, we have God revealed as sanctifier and the giver of eternal life is the Spirit. Um, so Father, Old Testament, the Jesus, New Testament, the Son, and then we have the Spirit. Well, if you look at verse number 6, this is quite impossible. God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba Father. You're not talking about one person with, you know, at three different times. This is three persons in one there are those who believe in what we call tritheism. That is, that there are three, in fact, independent, autonomous, equal beings. Um, no, God is one. We are monotheists. Okay. Without question, the concept of the Trinity is a difficult one. But there's something that is very important for us to recognize. I'd like to read you a couple quotes here. Bear with me. One writer puts it this way. The Trinity is not primarily a doctrine any more than the Incarnation is primarily a doctrine. There is a doctrine about the Trinity as there are doctrines about many other facts of existence. But if Christianity is true, the Trinity is not a doctrine. The Trinity is God. And the fact that God is Trinity, that in a profound and mysterious way there are three divine persons eternally united in one life of complete perfection, beatitude, is not a piece of gratuitous mystification thrust by dictatorial clergymen down the throats of an unwilling but helpless laity, and therefore to be accepted, if at all, with reluctance and discontent. It is the secret of God's most intimate life and being, into which in his infinite love and generosity he has admitted us. And it is therefore to be accepted with amazed and exultant gratitude. Another writer puts it this way. The heart of the matter is that the doctrine of the Trinity is not an abstract mathematical puzzle, not the articulation of the rhythm of life, and not the projection upon the ultimate of the manifold triplicities that a little inspired imagination can easily suggest to us. That is that God shows up in different ways at different times. It arises from the fundamental recognition that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. A recognition which is itself enabled by awareness of participation in the Spirit in that same mystery. The rhythm is that of faith and of worship. And the mystery at the center is the crucified and risen Christ. The sacrament and pledge of the reconciling and redeeming good favor of the Father extended even to us. 
Yet just because he is God with us, the awareness of faith opens into recognition of the triune being of God. For nothing is less, nothing less is required if the truth of the gospel has not, or is not in the last resort to be set aside. If we reject Trinity, then we have in fact rejected the gospel. The third thing I want to say quickly about the Trinity is that Paul does not speak of it in the form of a creed. When we read of what Paul says about God, he speaks of what each member of the Trinity has done, is doing, and will do in the future. I'm not opposed to creeds. and Sometimes we begin our worship with the Apostles' Creed. I'm not opposed to doctrinal statements. We have one. It's on our church website, if you want to know. They embody for us a type of shorthand, a way for us to express what we believe. But if we are not careful they may become idols which come to replace God. They may become statements that are hollow. They have no reality in our lives. Just as the lawyer said to Jesus that he knew what the great commandments were in Luke chapter 10, he didn't know, he didn't know who his neighbor was. Well, if you don't know who your neighbor is, then how can you obey the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself? And if, in fact, we, we say that God is Trinity, but we don't see the reality in our lives, and we have something that is a mere shell, uh, shell, a mere facade. If we claim to believe that God is Trinity, but fail to appreciate the realities and implications of our lives, then we have missed the boat. As in our praying, we pray to God the Father, through God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit. As I was writing this, I was wondering, and I was wondering if you might be wondering if I've sort of gone too far afield here, if I'm stretching a bit. But then we come to the verses that follow this. We stopped at verse number 7 last week. Listen to what Paul says in verses 8, 9, and 10. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. If you were to take the time to sit down and read the letter to the Galatians aloud in one sitting by yourself, when you came, when you would come to these verses 8, 9, and 10, I think it would remind you of what we find at the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, which Paul tells the story of the, the Galatians, or rather, what is wrong with this story? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. In verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? As we look at our passage today, which is verses 8, 9, and 10, in beginning to look at it, we must acknowledge that knowing God is what the gospel is all about. Now that you know God, Paul says, or rather are known by God. In John chapter 17, we have something quite unique in the gospels. We have a prayer of Jesus to his father, his high priestly prayer. And this is what he says. This is in verse number three. Now this is eternal life. Okay, so here it is. This is what eternal life is that they may know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is what the gift of God is, eternal life, to know God. And the promise made to Jeremiah, found in Jeremiah 31, we read about the new covenant, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, know the Lord. There it is, know the Lord. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, this isn't to say, and Jeremiah is not saying, and God is not saying in the Old Testament, that the, the people of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, did not know God. Rather that in the Old Covenant, the way to come to know God, to come into God's presence, was through mediators, through priests, through prophets. In the New Covenant, we no longer have need of priests or prophets. In Christ, every Christian has and shares in the prophetic office as well as being a priest and a king. In 1 John 2, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. It's an astounding statement. And then several times in the book of Revelation, we find the idea of being priests and kings together to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. And then in chapter 5, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. With this directness of approach, we as Christians, we are part of the new covenant, not the old covenant, we now have direct access to God. We are now able to know God in a way that far surpasses that of the Old Testament saints. Knowing God is what Christianity is all about. Paul would write later in his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 1.17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Before I finish the verse, you see the Trinity there. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. The essence of the Christian faith is to know God. And then we have that amazing passage in Philippians 3. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. This is the inheritance. This is the gift to all of God's people. To know God, to have a relationship with God, to have an intimate relationship with God directly. This is what the Galatians had when Paul preached the gospel and they accepted and they said, yes, we trust in this man, Jesus, the crucified Messiah. This is something new for them. This is not what they previously had. If you look at verse number 8, he said, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. That is, previously they were marked by two things, ignorance and idolatry. And I sort of debated this, but perhaps we should say slavery to idols. When it comes to the matter of ignorance, we might say, well, yeah, 
of course the Galatians were ignorant. They were Gentiles. Only the Jews know about Jehovah. The Gentiles didn't. And so they were ignorant. Um, this isn't what Paul is talking about. He's saying, you did not know God. You did not have a relationship with God. We've seen this elsewhere, that in the Old Testament, but I would argue in the New Testament as well, knowing involves a personal and intimate relationship. It is used in the Old Testament to describe the sexual union between a husband and his wife. But it is in the modern age where we have created a separation between the one who knows and what he or she knows. So fact and value have been separated, and so now we accumulate all these facts in our minds, and they're facts, and I'm, these are the things I know, but I am the one who knows. And so our view of knowledge, I would argue, is very impersonal. I know that, but no, no consequences for me, and very distant. And to know something requires nothing of me. It is, we live in a time in which the knower and the thing known has little or no connection. I don't know if any of you ever do crossword puzzles. I have been known to do them from time to time. And sometimes I'm amazed at the trivia that is stuck in my brain. When I will write it down, I'm like, how did I even know that? Because that bit of information really had no significance, no consequence in my life except to know how to fill in the crossword puzzle. This is not a biblical view of knowledge. So we have to be careful when we understand or to understand what Paul is saying. Previously, the Galatians did not have a relationship with God. They were not part of his family. They were not in Christ. In fact, they were enslaved to idols. And here we return, in my view, to the language of the Exodus. As pagans, the Galatians worshipped false gods, those who by nature are not gods. It's interesting, the story is told in Acts chapter 14 that when Paul first went to Galatia, he was accompanied by Barnabas, this amazing event happened. Uh, in Lystra, one of the towns there, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted the Lycon in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. This is what the Galatians used to be like. They worshipped gods that were not true gods at all. In 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with the, the business of meat offered to idols. In chapter 8, he says, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. He says, We know this. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, in quotation marks, and many lords, again in quotation marks, yet for us there is but one God the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Later, a couple chapters later, he says, Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices are offered to demons 
not to God. Therefore, we would say about the Galatians, before their coming to faith in Jesus, they were enslaved in idolatry. They were just like Israel was enslaved in Egypt. Paul preached the good news to them. They came to know God. They came into a relationship with God. They came to be known by God. They had been set free. They had been liberated from the slavery to demons. But now the men from Jerusalem came and say, well, it's nice that you believe in Jesus, but it's not quite enough. So Paul asks, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Let me see. Supernatural deliverance from slavery, followed by a desire to return to the life of slavery. Does that sound familiar to you? The children had been led out of Egypt by Moses. They had been delivered by the mighty arm of God. But as they're in the wilderness, they face an uncertain future, a journey into an uncertain future, an unknown future. There were times when they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And then when they did have food, they got tired of having the same thing over and over again. They're afraid of the Egyptians behind them and the Canaanites ahead of them. And time and time again, amazingly, these people who had been enslaved for over four centuries say to Moses, why did we leave Egypt? Why did we leave? We should go back. We had a better life as slaves than we have here in the wilderness. They actually plotted to choose a new leader, someone other than Moses, who would take them back to Egypt. This is what Paul sees the Galatians doing. They had been set free in a way that was no less powerful, I would argue even more powerful, than the deliverance out of Egypt, the ten plagues. Now Jesus has in fact defeated death. They have been taken out of slavery. They've been redeemed by the personal action of the one true God who sent his Son and his Spirit. Now that they've looked at the world of freedom, they don't like what they see. They want to go back to something more secure. Some place where life is more regulated. Some place where life seems safer. Where you know where you are. You know what to do. That is to say, they want the life of slavery. The Galatians are choosing to go back where they came from. Paul declares that in fact they are choosing to go back to the old pagan gods that they worshipped before they were set free by the true God. Now, if you look at this, you might read these verses and say, well, no, 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 that's not what Paul's saying at all. Because he says, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Okay, that does seem to indicate a return to the old ways. But then in verse number 10, he says, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. This speaks of Jewish custom. So these two things don't refer to the same thing. The weak and miserable principles, that's the old way of life. The observing of special days, this is the Jewish way of life. And debated in this as, as writing my notes, you know, some people would say, well, what Paul's talking about here is the law, Mosaic law. Um, I won't necessarily, I wouldn't disagree. But I think you need to allow for the fact that many of the customs and practices of the Jews were never commanded by God. These were things that they had created on their own. After all, Jesus 
quoted the book of Isaiah when he was speaking of the religious leaders. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. So I would argue that many of the Jewish practices were in fact, you can't find them in scripture. Some of them were. But still, why would Paul make a connection between the pagan way of life and the Jewish way of life? Something, these would seem to have nothing in common. A monotheistic way of life, a polytheistic way of life. This is pagan. This is, at least in part, what God has revealed. Why make a connection? It's this. The Messiah has come. And with him comes the new world where God's grace reaches out just to the Jews. God's grace reaches out to all humanity. In turning to Judaism, in turning to Jewish practices, they are saying they prefer a system in which ethnicity is more important than what God has created, that is, membership in his family. They are opting for the Jewish law, the rule of Jewish law, which had kept the Jews in a state of slavery. Remember chapter 3, verse 23, that we were held prisoners by the law, locked up. They are preferring to go back to jail than they are to be free in Christ. To turn to the rule of law, they would say, listen, Paul, you're just, you're just wrong. We're not going to worship Zeus anymore. We're not going to worship the Greek gods anymore. We're still worshiping the true God. But in fact, by turning to law, they are denying that the Messiah has come. Paul says you might as well go back to the old gods. You might as well become pagans again. Because you are not worshiping the true God. The law was given by God. We've seen this. It had a purpose. It is a story within the story. But now the, the story has been fulfilled. The plan has been finished. And anyone who goes back to the earlier time, goes back to the law, is saying the law stands alone. It stands independent. In other words, it becomes a god. It becomes an idol. I don't need God. God gave me his law. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm okay now. I will just keep the law. And the law becomes an idol. The whole point of becoming a Christian was and is to escape slavery. The slavery of idolatry. And to find freedom in knowing the true God. It's the Exodus all over again. Escape out of Egypt and freedom in Christ. There's something I think I should mention at this point. And the fact is, we do observe Sundays. Sunday is the Lord's Day, based on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we find in the New Testament that Easter and Pentecost were observed by many in the church, including the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter. So what's the problem with observing days and things like that? The Galatians were keeping Jewish festivals. They are observing festivals that not only look back, but we're looking ahead to when God would send the Messiah. They were historical in nature, but they're also looking ahead when God would send the Messiah. God has sent the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. By observing these festivals, they are in essence saying, we're still waiting for the Messiah. We're still waiting for the Messiah. And in fact, the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah to come. Paul says he has come. 
he has come. Paul does something interesting in verse number 9. He seems to correct himself. Did you, did you catch it there? But now that, you are, now that you know God, or rather are known by God. Again, it takes us back to 1 Corinthians 8. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. See, what really matters is not your knowledge of God, but rather God's knowledge of you. Our knowledge of God is small, it's feeble, it's partial. It seems to go up and down depending on our moods and our feelings. If that's what made us Christians, we would be standing on very shaky ground. What matters is that God himself has known us. And not just in the sense that he has known about us when we were born, where we were born, and things like that. But that on his side of the equation, he has established a bond, a covenant with us, in which he comes to know us through and through, and he calls us sons and daughters. We are members of his family. So the choice is clear to the Galatians, to anyone who has put their faith in Jesus. Continue in freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ. We have been brought out of slavery. God sent his son who died that we might have freedom and now God has sent his spirit in our hearts. Or we can turn back and become idolaters all over again and become enslaved as we were before we became Christians. I would argue that the primary trap for us as God's people is not breaking God's laws. That is important. There are certain things we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to covet. We're not supposed to lie. These are things we're not supposed to do. But I don't think that's the primary trap. I think that's what we focus on, but we should focus on something else. The trap is idolatry. Worshipping false gods. And when we worship false gods, it leads to bad behavior. This, I think, is what Paul is saying in these three verses to the Galatians. Make sure that you're worshiping the true God. And if you are, God as Father, Son, and Spirit, then everything else will follow. But as I've said before, the men from Jerusalem are not Trinitarian. They don't believe God is Trinity. And so it is not difficult for them to deny the gospel. The heart of this passage and its central application to us as Christians today is the call to find true freedom in knowing and being known by the true God. We are to live lives of devotion and worship. We are to praise and adore the true God whose character and actions we can never study enough. He has set us free from false gods. But these false gods keep whispering to us. Why don't you come back? This is an easier way of life. Why are you taking that difficult road? It's easier to rule your life by the old lineup of options. In our day, money sucks, sex, and power. These are the things that call us to idolatry. Put your confidence in these things and turn away from the true God. It's much harder to follow God who has revealed himself in Jesus and the Spirit, to learn freedom, true humanness, 
in the fellowship of other believers. I need to learn what it means to be free as God's child by being with you, my brothers and sisters. This is what Paul wants the Galatians and us to know. There really is no alternative. God has acted. We have tasted the benefits of God's redemption. If we go back, we are in fact denying not only ourselves and what God has done for us, but we are denying God himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. The story is told of uh, some ecologist, uh, I don't want to call him echo terrorist, that sounds a bit extreme, but they, they were really concerned about this whale that was uh, in an aquarium, a huge aquarium up in the northwest, and so they decided to set him free, you know, free willy, you know, let him go. And they did that, but an amazing thing happened. The whale swam out for a while, but then on his own, he came back to the aquarium, came back to captivity. I've told you before that we have a tendency to pull toward death. We have a tendency to pull toward slavery. We have been set free. God is the only one we are to listen to, that we are to follow and trust in. But we have that within us that pulls us back. We want to go back to the old ways. It just... feel a little more secure. Things seem like that's the way they ought to be. Paul says, no, not at all. Don't be like the Israelites who want to go back to slavery. They got tired of manna. They got garlic in Egypt. Come on. Paul says, no. God has set us free. And God knows us. An astounding thought. Let's pray together. Father, I think that we speak very freely of you as being Father, Son, and Spirit. It's been in the hymns that we sang today. And yet I think if we would be honest, we are more comfortable with the old gods, idols. We put our confidence in them, having financial security or having a certain amount of control, or what we imagine is control in our lives. We have certain patterns of behavior that make us feel more secure, rather than recognizing that we are to know you, and that you in fact know us. That this is not something we do on our own, but with each other as your children. Sometimes we even find comfort in talking about you and talking about the truth rather than living it out in our lives. I thank you that what we may get today from the sermon is not dependent on me alone, the things I've said, but your spirit who lives within us. May he speak to our hearts. May he apply these truths. May we turn away from idolatry, moment by moment, and turn to you, the true and living God. 
We pray for Sweet and her family as they leave tonight. We pray that you would give them safety. We're thankful for their time they've been able to spend with Joy and Z. Give them safety. Now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We are so grateful for the opportunity to worship you. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.